As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. This is The Red Line, where we interview three big geopolitical experts on one big issue shaping the news both here and overseas. And I'm your host, Michael Hilliard. I opened up my last piece on Nagorno-Karabakh in May with a story about just how venomous the ethnic tensions are in this conflict. That in 90% of the conflicts around the world, even when the governments hate each other, the average citizens can find some common ground. They can get along and even maybe share a drink. This conflict though is different. The hatreds run deep and the scars remain fresh. There is no love lost between these two combatants we are going to be focusing on today. With most of these frozen conflicts, things stay the same for decades. And the borders of places like Transnistria and Moldova have not moved since 1992. It's kind of the normal for this region of the world, with conflict zones like Ukraine, Georgia, Moldova and Cyprus all having frozen conflict zones. Also on that list till recently was Armenia and Azerbaijan. But this conflict is now very different. War has broken out in full scale. And rather than the standard exchange of a handful of unimportant hills, one side has been routed. And the regional maps will now change forever. It is very hard to understate the difference that this conflict will make to the Caucasus region. And I hope we can get that through to you today. If you want to understand more of the conflict's background then I highly recommend you check out our first Karabakh piece before this one. As on that piece, we go through many of the cultural aspects and history that set the stage for this recent fighting over the last few weeks. As this piece will mostly be focusing on the recent conflict and what that will mean for the wider region. We obviously want to show both sides of this conflict, and I will be taking a neutral view on this one myself. So to be straight up, one of the guests this week will be pro-Aziri. One of them will be pro-Armenian, and the other two will be completely neutral as well. This program is not here to take sides, but just to give you the facts on the ground as they stand today. Just to go over some of the very basics briefly in case you don't have time to watch that first piece. And obviously vastly over-summarizing, Nagorno-Karabakh is a region inside the UN-recognized territory of Azerbaijan, a Muslim-majority country in the South Caucasus. The area was an enclave of ethnically-majority Armenians, surrounded by Azerbaijan. There were some majority ethnic Azeri towns inside Karabakh, but it was mostly an Armenian state. The two sides have had massive ethnic tensions for centuries now, and it was a powder keg ready to explode for a very long time. The only thing keeping the sides from fighting each other back then was both being ruled by the Soviet Union, so borders were much less hard than they are today. When the Soviet Union collapsed, the UN kept the borders that Stalin had drawn decades before, and this put the majority Armenian Nagorno-Karabakh as part of Azerbaijan, 30 kilometers from the rest of Armenia, and surrounded on all sides by Azerbaijan. Like many of the other ex-Soviet republics, the first days of these new republics were chaotic to say the least, and Yerevan, the capital of Armenia, seizing the opportunity, took its forces and pushed into Azerbaijan's UN-recognized territory, occupying Nagorno-Karabakh, 
The assaults went incredibly well for the Armenian armies, and they went on to occupy the, the areas north, west, and south of Nagorno-Karabakh as well, justifying taking these majority Azeri areas as creating a defense perimeter to prevent ethnic Armenians from being surrounded by Azeris. And that's where this conflict sat for decades, with the southwest corner of Azerbaijan being populated by Armenians, having their own autonomous government that worked closely with Yerevan, and the Azeris vowing to retake the land back someday. Well, it looks like that day may have finally come. And to go over some of the details that got us to this point, we turn to our first guest. Part 1. Classic Soviet mapmaking. The fact that neither Azerbaijan nor, Ar- nor Armenia were independent countries, uh, we you know, achieved our independence in 1918. And when you look at the map uh, of Azerbaijan, you will see that Nagorno-Karabakh was part of Azerbaijan at that point. Uh, some experts, uh, you know, Western analysts would argue that, uh, you know, when Stalin you know, drew that map, redrew that map, uh, neither Azerbaijan nor Armenia were internationally recognized. But this is something that we need to debate. Alex Rafulu is a Washington-based Azeri journalist specializing in the Caucasus region. Alex grew up in Baku, the capital of Azerbaijan. He joins us today. Uh, again, this is a controversial, uh, you know, uh, I would say not fully uh, researched uh, part of our history. But uh, what I can tell you is that uh, a, the land uh, always represented, just like other parts of Azerbaijan, just like other par- parts of the South Caucasus, represented the multinational reality. We don't never, I have never seen anyone from Azerbaijan claiming that Nagorno-Karabakh has never belonged to any Armenian nationality. Uh, that land was, you know, uh, you know, used by Armenians, Azerbaijanis. Together, it represents, you know, our common history, our common culture. Going back to 1991, the entire Caucasus region was imploding due to the power vacuum opened up by a collapsing Soviet Union. Seeing an opportunity in all the chaos, Armenia was looking to capture Nagorno-Karabakh, which was the majority Armenian region inside Azerbaijan. They launched a huge offensive into Azeri territory, and after a brief war, Armenia captured almost all of Nagorno-Karabakh, as well as the territory surrounding it to the north, west, and south, giving them what they called a security buffer. After all was said and done, Armenia occupied about one-sixth of Azerbaijan's internationally recognized territory. The ethnic island of Armenians was now connected to the rest of Armenia, through a solid Armenian bloc which they now called the Republic of Artsakh. To help out people not familiar with the region and to oversimplify and clarify, Nagorno-Karabakh is the original ethnic region of Azerbaijan, populated by majority Armenians. And Artsakh is Nagorno-Karabakh, combined with the surrounding areas conquered by the Armenians. So rather than being an exclave, it's a solid block. But these surrounding regions were once populated by Azeris, which complicates the situation. So Alex, can you take us through these complicated times in this 1991 offensive? Uh, Azerbaijan you know, was a democracy, uh, and but it was uh, it left us ill-prepared at that time. Uh, Russia took a side, unfortunately. Uh, we were left alone. Uh, although we were a democracy and uh, Azerbaijan back then, Azerbaijan government was relying on Turkey and hoping to get, you know, uh, attention from the West. Uh, what happened, we couldn't even get a single helicopter from Turkey. Uh, we have, uh, you know, perfectly documented, uh, you know, uh, you know, video rec- records from uh, our you know, former president, Abu Fazal Chibay, uh, complaining about the, the fact that 
he asked for a single helicopter from uh, our allies, and he never got that. Uh, we were ill-prepared, and nobody backed up. And even despite the fact that it was internationally, it was happening in an international recognized Azerbaijan's territory only. You know, uh, we we don't we we never claimed any territory in in Armenia. Although, you know, as I mentioned, the history of that part of the world is very complicated. But uh, what we're referring to is internationally recognized uh, you know, borders of both Armenia and Azerbaijan. Uh, but we were punished for that. And uh, back then in the U.S., uh, you mentioned like seven uh, territories uh, along with Zagonga. But when one of the territories, Kalbajar, uh, was occupied by Armenia, uh, and the people were, you know, given only ten hours to vacate their land, and uh, and I'm, I'm not mention Khojali and other, uh, you know, tragedies. Uh, so uh, unfortunately, uh, that was a case uh, and remained the case for last three decades. Uh, Azeris, they did not, you know, get the same spotlight that they deserve, uh, and uh, and that obviously drew us to today's situation. Um, I mean, remember, all this conflict that uh, will be uh, described differently, uh, you know, uh, in national media, uh, some will call it dispute territory, some will call it ethnic, uh, you know, uh, conflict. Uh, it has to do only with the mere fact that the ethnic Armenians did not want to live in Azerbaijan at that time. And this dispute between our countries has to do with the people of Azerbaijan who were dislodged and were driven out of Nagorno-Karabakh and and seven uh, other territories in the early 90s and, uh, and we, were, we were left alone. Uh, and also the very important point is that the fact that Azerbaijanis uh, were kicked out of their home, uh, 700,000 people. Now, I grew up in Baku and I still remember the day they came in uh, in other parts of the country, they moved to inland, the IDPs. Um, they, they never you know, got the same spot. And they got a chance to return back to re- to visit their home um, over, you know, last three decades. So uh, we that's why uh, we failed to engage in actual rehumanization uh, process. And this was a black box and was supposed to, you know, at some point, uh, you know, explode and let it happen again. I talked about this a little bit in our last piece on a Gordon Karabakh. There's something I still find very interesting about this conflict. In my travels around this region, I've sat at tables with Georgians and Ossetians, with Moldovans and Transnistrians, with Russians and Chechens, but never Azeris and Armenians. There is just way too much tension in this conflict. I don't think I've ever come across an ethnic conflict like this, that there's so much venom behind it towards the average citizen of the other side. What brought us to this extreme polarized situation? Uh, you, you're putting your finger on the, actually the core of the problem here. Uh, uh, Armenians and Azeris, you know, we look like each other. And historically, uh, culturally, we have similarities and differences. And you, you, you still can't see how Azeris and Armenians are able, capable to live together peacefully in Georgia and in other parts you know, of the region. Uh, and this was the reality of Nagorno-Karabakh as well. But uh, the, the pitfall here is Russia. Uh, Armenians might have thought in early 1990s that they were the winners of the first war. But, but in reality, they completely dependent on and still are dependent on Russia's goodwill. 
And that's why, by the way, that's why I consider today's reality, you know, uh, possible reality, uh, if, we, if, if, you, if I may, uh, uh, equally dangerous for Azerbaijan as well, because Azerbaijanis understand that they have been pushed into Russian military sphere right now. Russians never left Azerbaijan. Uh, Armenia achieved, you know, the territory back then. Uh, they, they, but let's think about pre-war situation. But Armenians were able to live in Baku. They were able to live in other parts of the country. They were always, I mean, uh, we had Armenian, uh, you know, uh, native uh, you know, MP at the parliament. I mean, uh, Aziz, by the way, let's not forget the fact that Aziz also back then used to live in Armenia. Uh, I mean, uh, altogether we had IDPs and refugees, uh, you know, uh, that were kicked, were, were, uh, uh, that, 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 you know, lost their homes, you know, uh, in, in the 1990s. Uh, altogether like 100 million uh, Azeris, like uh, 700 of them, 700,000 of them were uh, be, being from Nagorno-Karabakh and, and the surrounding territories. You know, uh, what was missing here significantly was empathy towards, uh, you know, displaced people. Uh, and as, as I mentioned, the fact that they never got a chance to return back, uh, you know, uh, and, uh, and so the, that, that, that's why uh, this, is, this was the only option for them, you know, uh, when the war broke on 27th of September to honestly, uh, uh, you know, to think about action, to, to see the light, you know, at the end of the tunnel, that they, oh, they will be one day, you know, for us to. To, to return back and visit our home. I had friends, personally, I'll share one personal story. I had a friend uh, that was originally from Fizoli. Um, uh, he was living in Baku. Um, he was a no-war, uh, you know, uh, Azerbaijani uh, human rights defender. And uh, he immediately, you know, uh, signed up, you know, when uh, the war broke uh, and wanted to go back and, you know, join the military. I told him, why would you do that? I mean, this... This goes against every single, uh, you know, syllable of, uh, you know, values that you believe in. Like, you are against a war. Why would you, you know, uh, join a war? He was like, you don't understand. This is the only chance for me to go see my dad's house, to go see my my dad's, you know, uh, you know uh, 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 like, to go see my, my, my parents' house. And, you know, when he, was, when he was kicked out of the land, he lost both of his parents. He was not even using the phrase that I was going to see the graveyard because he was not hopeful. After the 1991 conflict, many Aziris fled or were forced out of the new de facto Republic of Artsakh, fleeing into countries like Azerbaijan, Turkey and Iran. And with the Aziris moving out, additional ethnic Armenians moved into the territories in Nagorno-Karabakh and the surrounding areas. Artsakh became somewhere around 98% ethnically Armenian over the next couple of years. Meanwhile, Azerbaijan also began to crack down on Armenians living in Azerbaijan and making travel between the two nations very difficult. This forced quite a few Armenians to flee Azerbaijan to escape the tensions that were building up in the country. Both nations became increasingly homogenous, even though they had been very interdispersed during the Soviet period. And Artsakh became such a factor in the internal politics of both nations that Azerbaijan would consistently give speeches about retaking the lost territories. And for Armenia, it became such a huge part of their politics, the majority of the country's prime ministers over this period were either born or had fought in Artsakh, even though that according to the UN, it was not part of Armenia. The conflict would have small skirmishes from time to time with small arms, 
But in 2016, tensions boiled over again, and there was a short two-week war between Armenia and Azerbaijan. Can you take us through this 2016 conflict? In 2016, uh, there are a lot of caveats that are still, uh, you know, remain, uh, you know, I've been thinking about it over and over, still remain unclear to me. For instance, uh, the timing was interesting. You know, both Azerbaijan and Armenian leaders were, in fact, in Washington uh, just days before war broke. I mean, they both came to attend a different summit. It was not the Nagorno-Karabakh summit. It was a nuclear summit uh, that was was organized by uh, then the U.S. President Barack Obama. Uh, but they, in fact, they were in Washington and they both met with then, uh, you know, uh, Vice President uh, Biden and also they both were welcomed uh, at the State Department. Uh, you, you know, when you fly back from Washington to Baku or to Yerevan, it takes some time, right? I mean, they were here on the 31st of uh, February. Uh, I'm sorry, on the 20, uh, uh, on the 30th of um, 31st of March. I'm sorry. Uh, and uh, if you fly back, it will take at least like 10 hours to fly back from Washington and uh, to Baku uh, if there's a direct flight, maybe 11 hours. Someone, one of them, uh, pressed that button while they were in the flight. Either Aliyev or or then President Sarkisian. I don't know who. I can't say who clearly, but uh, but was was striking to me that they both were here, and uh, and something I I don't know what exactly happened that caused uh, that the trigger that war. But uh, you don't really you know prepare war, uh, you know or uh, you know uh, that scale of I would say. Uh, uh, barrel overnight. So it was an ongoing uh, preparation process while prisoners were in Washington. It's still, uh, again, it's still unfathomable to, to me. Uh, I, I can't understand if, I, I still don't know whether the U.S. knew about it and if they knew why they did not prevent something uh, that was perhaps preventable uh, or, if the, if, if, or if not, I still don't understand why it wasn't preventable. Um, Armenians, Azeri, if you ask an Azeri, depending on whom you ask, they will say the other side was the first, uh, you know, attacker. But um, the fact that um, you know Russians stepped in and and they they stopped both sides uh, was you know and, and in absence of Western presence at that time uh, was you know a, a clear sign that who was in charge of the region. Uh, Russia needed uh, to also divert attention from its own problems at that time. Uh, Azerbaijan has its own, uh, its, its own issues with the Western, particularly um, you know, uh, uh, with the West, particularly you know, when it comes to human rights and other uh, concerns. Uh, Armenia uh, at that time, um, you know, uh, as you know, uh, was going towards election process and uh, you know, tension was really high. Uh, you could just go back and see how Armenian uh, and Azeri leaders, I would say, probably uh, used to take advantage of uh, the war uh, during, you know, the election years, uh, the conflict. Both, uh, you know, regimes back then uh, were capable to basically use this conflict to, uh, you know, uh, be able to consolidate the power. Um, I, I, I mean, but it was a clear example for us, for the world to uh, understand that the frozen conflict, the notion of frozen conflict uh, will take us nowhere. 
so uh, that's why tension was there and the notion of frozen conflict was against all of us. And that takes us to today uh, that, that, you know, indicating that, that, that the war was inevitable. It was, supposed, it was coming. It was a matter of when, not, uh, you know, uh, how. We knew that uh, at some point, uh, you know, Armenians or Azeris, uh, you know, will try to, uh, you know, resolve the problem themselves. A- again, uh, the, the, the fact that winners take all, uh, you know, understanding mindset was not changed, uh, neither diplomatically, uh, uh, nor, uh, I would say, militarily, uh, since 2000, uh, since 1994, uh, you know, uh, was make this war only inevitable. Armenians and Azeris need to learn how to live, you know, in, you know, together in peace if we don't want to die together at war. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. In 2016, these nations went to full-blown war in the foothills of the eastern borders of Artsakh. Artillery shells fell, rockets were fired, and hundreds died on each side. The end result of the conflict, though, was minimal, with only a small handful of mountains being exchanged by the two sides. But it was the biggest change in the borders since 1991. Azerbaijan had gained some ground, and had seen the value in a military victory. In 1991, the two sides had fairly similar GDPs, as well as military spending, which is why Armenia was able to capitalize on the chaos in Baku and conquer so much Azeri territory. Fast forwarding to 2020 though, the Azeri economy is booming due to the massive gas reserves off the coast of the Caspian Sea, and the two nations are no longer on equal footing. Looking at 2018's numbers to get an idea, the Armenian economy had a GDP of just 12 billion US dollars, whereas the Azeri one had a GDP of 48 billion dollars. But where we see the starkest difference between these two countries is in military spending. Armenia spent a measly $591 million on defense in 2018, whilst the Azeris spent $2.6 billion, almost six times as much as the Armenians, building up a force that would eventually be able to force a military solution to this conflict. Both sides built up their forces, seeing the dark storm clouds on the horizon, and that day of fighting came on September 27th, 2020. Whilst the eyes of the rest of the world were distracted with COVID in the US election, the war in the Caucasus turned hot. And to tell us more about that, we turn to a man who is there in the trenches for these assaults. 
return to our second guest. Part 2. A Second Aleppo. In both Yerevan and in Karabakh, the mood and the fighting is far different than any other conflict. I'll give you one example, which is Ukraine. After the Maidan Revolution and after the major clashes in Ukraine in late 2014, you could go to Kiev or you could go to Kharkiv or Odessa or Lviv or Bay, almost anywhere in the country outside of the actual conflict zone, and you would hear next to nothing about the conflict. It may as well have been as if there was, you know, there was a, a small skirmish in the east of the country that people would sometimes talk about, but no one was really paying attention. It didn't affect the lives of the great majority of the population. This is completely different. Here in Armenia... And over there in Karabakh or in Artsakh, the war is the only thing people are talking about. It has affected and scarred the lives of people here in a way that I have never seen. Having spoken to other journalists who've been on the, on the ground in other conflicts, they say that this is the most intense fighting they have seen outside of maybe Aleppo. It's more they say it's more intense than Iraq or Afghanistan. And I have... I, I can only really agree with them. Every single person you speak to, if you go for a drink or, or if you go for coffee or you go for an interview, people will talk about nothing but the war. Nick Much is a Kiwi conflict journalist and reporter for the Daily Beast and the Byline Times. Nick is reported from war zones ranging from Venezuela to Ukraine and has just come back from the front lines of Nagorno-Karabakh. Nick is currently calling in from Yerevan, the capital of Armenia. We are proud to have him join us today. So we crossed the border, and almost as soon as you cross the border, you realize that this is really serious stuff. We could hear there was shelling going on all around us. We couldn't see it, but it was in the hills that, we, that would just echo over and over again. And I remember my driver had a bit of a freak out. He kept on, like, hitting the wheel and saying, this is terrible. They're not supposed to be here yet. I can't say that hugely helped my, my, my nerves. We pulled over to a small hamlet and we picked up a hitchhiker. He was a, quite a fat man. He was wearing, you know, grey trousers and a suit jacket. And he was wielding an AK-74 with uh, three extra magazines just taped around to the side. And he jumps in the back. And as we go down the road, he keeps starts telling us his story. Obviously, my driver's translating. This is all in Armenian. And he said his name was Shahin and that he was from Hadrut, which was one of the first provinces that the Azerbaijani army had captured back from the Armenians. And he said that his village had been burnt and that he'd seen people killed in front of him. He had fled with his family and he had um, sent his family back to safety in Armenia, in Yerevan, and that he was planning to go there. And he was going to go to the front. What he told me is he was going to try and sneak in at night and just with his gun and just take as many Azeris with him as he could before he was gunned down. Did this ever happen? I don't know, and maybe I will never know. But it will, I will never forget that moment that he told me that. It was September 27th when hostilities broke out all across the front line of Artsakh. No one is completely sure who fired the first shots, but Azeri forces began pushing west all up and down the line. The first days of the conflict also saw incredibly heavy drone strikes and targeting of Armenian planes and armor throughout Artsakh. Many of the Armenian strong points were smashed incredibly hard in those first few days. 
These were pivotal points that the Armenians relied on for the defense of this area. How effective do you think these drones were against the Armenian tanks and strong points? There's not really much you can say other than they just overwhelmed them. They, it, it was it was like a turkey shoot. A lot of the, the Armenians fought very very bravely and very ferociously, but they just couldn't do much. They were just absolutely annihilated. And I encourage anyone who is genuinely wants to know what this conflict looked like and why Azerbaijan was victorious to literally just look at the photos of the drone strikes. The drones, in many cases, were out of range of Armenian defences. Uh, they had, in, in some cases, managed to disable Armenian radar so that they couldn't be detected properly. And you can just see them. And it, it, it looks like a video game. You know, they just press the button and all of a sudden a huge explosion and an Armenian truck or, or artillery gun is just taken out and there is absolutely nothing they can do about it. Now, maybe what the Armenians uh, should have done, or the, or the uh, Artsakh Defence Army should have done, that people have been saying, is if they had known a war like this was coming, they should have invested more heavily in a trench system or a tunnel system, similar to the ones you might see that Hamas would use in Gaza or something like that. But it seems they relied too heavily on, on old methods of fighting to fight a, a 21st century war, and that is one of the reasons that they lost. The first major Azeri assault came in the northeast of Artsakh, but the Azeris only managed to push in and take around five kilometers from the border. Why was this assault nowhere near as successful as the next one to come in the south? Okay, so for one thing, the Armenians had better defenses in the north uh, originally. So one of the things that, the, that should be noticed that the Azerbaijanis did at the very start of the war was they actually had what was something of, a, of an attack, of, of a probing attack, kind of an attack on all fronts at the same time. Now, this wasn't meant to completely overwhelm the Armenian defences. What they were really poking for is they were poking for what's the weakest spot. It was almost like a major reconnaissance mission than a, than it, than a major military operation. Then they realised that Armenian defences had a weak chink, you know, the... the um, the little, uh, you know, the little hole in Helm's Deep in Lord of the Rings or something where they could put their bomb in and, and blow it up. But the Armenians happened to have that on their southern flank. And then they started positioning all of their attacks towards that little part in the southern line. Also, the north is much more, e it's more mountainous. There's more forest cover, which is why they, they were using um you know, they were using phosphorus and they were burning the white phosphorus and burning the forests. And so it was just a much more difficult uh, location to attack, whereas the south is, is, is a harder place to defend. Where the biggest Azeri push happened was in the southeast of Artsakh, along the border with Iran. Azeri drones destroyed most of the Armenian armoured forces along the border and then smashed through with their own armoured forces along the flat southern lands eventually pushing all the way to the border with Armenia proper. One of the other major reported factors that helped with the breakthrough was the use of Syrian mercenaries, allegedly paid for by the Turkish government. These battle-hardened and disciplined troops, mostly being veterans of campaigns in Syria, Iraq and Libya, were absolutely crucial in some of the victories here. The Azeri government completely denies that Syrian fighters were there on the ground, but what are the reports you're hearing from being on the ground there yourself? 
So being on the ground, now the line that was given by the Armenian government, I will give that to you with the proviso that it is the line of the Armenian government. So it is obviously partisan, but they believed that the Azeri, that the Azeri army were using Syrian mercenaries as in effect their shock troops. The, the troops that were, in, so one of the problems that has been known for a long time that Azerbaijan has not wanted to risk major civilian casual major uh, military casualties pardon in order to retake Nagorno-Karabakh in case that puts pressure on the regime now what what the armenian side believe is that they found a workaround with their relationship with turkey they get turkey to bring syrian mercenaries in then what happens is that they don't have to take the large numbers of casual of military casualties among their own population it's very brutal and very ruthless but it's effectively a win-win for them now this has obviously been denied by the government but there have been multiple credible reports not just and this is not just videos going around telegram channels this is credible reports in human rights organizations and in the media uh a piece of point you to is by betha mckernan in the in the guardian and i can literally read it to you as turkish-backed syrian fighters arrive on the azerbaijani of the side of the front line and foreign-made drones pick off targets from the air Nagorno-Karabakh is the latest theatre in which Mon Moscow and Ankara have become enmeshed. She even quotes a Syrian say, who says, they lied to us. They said we were coming to guard oil and gas facilities. She quotes this to Mohammed Al-Hamza, 26-year-old from Aleppo, who said he was injured by Armenian shelling two days after his deployment into the Azerbaijani support lines, who goes on to say, I did a tour in Libya and some of that was dangerous but nothing like this. Around 250 of us have already asked to go home. Well, if 250 people have already asked to go home, what is the estimate of the actual amount of Syrian fighters that are there on the ground in this conflict? So the, they estimated pro a couple of thousand, like maybe about two to two and a half thousand. And that of them, up to a thousand may have been killed. Like we're talking very extreme casualty figures. That would be what you would expect if these were being used as effectively the 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 shock troops to to you know run into the opposing trenches. After conquering the entire southern region of Artsakh, the Azeri forces began to move north, heading towards two incredibly vital targets. The first target of which being right near the southwestern border, pretty much in the top middle of Artsakh. This is the all-important Lachin Corridor, which we'll hear lots about coming up. Why was the Lachin Corridor so important to the defense of Artsakh? Lachin is the best, uh, most defensible and, uh, you know, link between mainland Armenia and the Republic of Nagorno-Karabakh itself. And actually, most of the negotiations... Uh, before this war broke out, were over the status of what Lachin would be like. Now, basically, if the uh, Azeris had cut Lachin, had cut the Lachin corridor, it would have been extremely difficult for Armenia to reinforce, uh, you know, the, the mainland, the Republic of Artsakh, with troops, with supplies, with anything like that. In the end, Lachin was never taken possibly due to the Russian presence in the area. But the Azeris instead turned toward this centre of Artsakh and went on to capture Shushi, or Shushar once captured by the Azeris. This is once the capital of Azeri Karabakh. 
and was the town that held the majority of the Aziri population before they were forced out. What does it mean strategically for the Aziris to have captured Shusha rather than going for Lachin? Shushi to the Armenians and Shusha to the Azerbaijanis was really the most important location of the war for both uh, tactical and strategic reasons and also for symbolic reasons. Now, Shushi sits on a hill. It's it's in walking distance, literally from Stepanakert. It's about six or seven kilometers away. And it overlooks it as well. Eustic artillery pieces up in Shushi, and you can just rain as much fire down on Stepanakert as you want. And you can rain it accurately, and you can hit any military base, or any military installation that you, that you want. I mean, you could probably, it's also within, effectively within sniper range as well. So it was only when the Armenians captured Shushi in the first war in the 1990s that they really started to be able to win the war. It's also symbolic because Shusha, for the Azerbaijanis call it, was the town that during the Soviet period had the most, uh, the highest proportion of Azeri citizens. And so it was a, it, capturing that was a great symbolic victory for them. Now, there was one, one thing that, that Aliyev, uh, Pre uh, President Aliyev of Azerbaijan said is um, that uh, meant that some people at the time thought that he might be open to the negotiations he ended up making. Originally, he said, this is the final push. We are going to take back all of Karabakh now. He then later changed his tune and said, our victory will be incomplete without Shusha. Because once the Azerbaijanis had taken Shusha, not only do they have the high ground, the, the high tactical ground, but they've also taken back the, the symbolic location of their feet in the first war. So in some ways, it's their symbol of taking back their national pride. Once Shusha had been captured, there was no doubt in who had been victorious. And the roads back to Armenia became loaded with fleeing civilians and soldiers, people trying to get back into Armenia proper. Although, like the dying days of most wars, there are always some ultra-zealots. Some Armenians wanted to escalate the fight and bring Russia into the conflict by striking in Armenia proper, rather than containing the fighting in the disputed Nagorno-Karabakh territories. What do you think stopped that from happening? So, what, so one of the things is that Armenia had these very, very powerful missiles called Iskander missiles that effectively they're just very good at targeting they're, they're very big they're very powerful and if you lobbed one of them against a city it would be you know one of the one of the most destructive things you could launch outside of a, you know a, a nuclear weapon azerbaijan had threatened also to hit a nuclear power plant south of yerevan uh, which would have caused you know extreme chaos in the same sort of way. And yes, this rhetoric had been escalating on both sides for some time. Now, I think the reason that it didn't happen is that Russia and Turkey had effectively both realized that they didn't really want to get into a war with each other. And 
Turkey was more committed to Azerbaijan than Russia was to Armenia. And they realized that no one really wanted this war escalating any further. I think also because there was, and unfortunately for my Armenian friends to say, there was such a clear victor on the battlefield already. Now, if this war had dragged out for longer and longer and longer and longer, I think it would have been more likely that this would have happened. With a good chunk of the armed forces and most of the civilians evacuating out of what was left of Artsakh, many headed to the Armenian capital of Yerevan. You're currently sitting in Yerevan at the moment, so what is the mood like there? It feels like one big funeral, and one big funeral that's probably going to go on for years and years and years. Yeah, well, I had a I had a thought the other day. I am a foreigner, and you know, it's 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 very very hard seeing all these people that I, I've known in some cases for a long time, in some cases not for a very long time at all. Everyone is grieving. No one is celebrating any kind of birthday. Christmas is likely going to be cancelled. You know, there are no there's no uh, outpouring. There are no types of celebrations or festivities or anything going on. Every single person you talk to, that, as I said, they will talk about the war for hours on end. And then they will say, you know, one of my friends, t- you know, told me, yeah, when I was out for a drink with her, yeah, I, I we had to bury uh, one of my cameramen. He was 21 years old and he was killed on one of the last days of the fighting. He'd gone there as a cameraman then he came back and felt like a coward for not being there among the troops, so had gone to the front and was killed near Shushi. You know, I had a, a, another one of my friends who was a, a, a local journalist, but had been injured, just being like, every single day we will be sitting in the, in our TV studio and the names will come in of, of the dead. And all, every without exception, every day, this is the dead, the list of the dead that are still being released, that are still being found, that are still being certified. And everyone will just go silent. And because, you know, people will just start bursting out crying everywhere as soon as the name comes up that they know, you know, loads of people that I've seen here. Everyone's lot, everyone's looks gaunt, looks depressed. They've lost a lot of weight. Is there any will to rally together and get back in the fight? Or has this really been the breaking of the Armenian army the Azeris have been talking about now for weeks? The Armenians, the Armenians have withdrawn the majority of their military equipment. The Russians, I was in Lachin yesterday, uh, the Russians are very, very dug in. When the Russians want to move quickly, they definitely can. They have, you know, have heavy artillery pieces. They have anti-drone EMPs. They have radars. And this stuff is all dug in behind sandbags and trenches going down the Lachin road. Now, where there is still the potential... Uh, for fighting, at least among people I've spoken to around here, is in the Kalvajar region. Because the Kalvajar region was never taken by Azerbaijan. It's extremely hard to get to from the rest of Azerbaijan. You have to go through a northern mountain range that has very poor roads and is almost impassable. And so I was meant to go through Kalvajar the other day. But what we saw is that we saw, look, I can only say that they were irregular soldiers carrying, you know, automatic weaponry, no insignia, with masks all over their face that were directing directing traffic to go away from Kalbajar. I also had a friend of mine, uh, Neil Hauer, did a great piece yesterday where he spoke to some of the Armenian villagers that were effectively planning to stay in their houses and fight the Azerbaijan uh, the army when that came along. Now, as of recording, the territory has just been handed over 
So we don't know quite what's going to happen yet, but that is definitely a potential powder keg. And people are worried that you could see some kind of low-level insurgency against Azerbaijan in the Kalbajar region. Uh, this is, I think, the next phase of hard times. Remember, we've got Russian peacekeepers in there now, and no one really knows what, because obviously what happens to the Russian peacekeepers will be also be affected by Turkish uh, Turkish-Russian relations in the dynamics of what happens in other conflicts, whether it's in Syria or whether, whether it's in, in, in Libya or what have you. But I, there, there is so much anger and so much enmity between both sides. What, what you said at the start of your piece uh, a couple of months ago, before the conflict had broken out, you've never seen Azeris and Armenians sit side by side with a on a table and have a drink with each other. The hatred is just so thick and so fast. And they're now, for the first time in a long time, actually going to be living very, very close to each other. It's hard to see violence not break out in some form in the near future. We all know how important it is to keep your eye on the money and not just your own. To follow trends, track financial situations, follow gains and losses, check out the Yahoo Finance podcast. Every day, we'll give you a quick overview of the latest market and financial news that you need to know. You'll be able to hear about the biggest headlines in the business world in three minutes or less, right after markets close. It's perfect to listen to while you make another cup of coffee or work out a new budget. Check it out now. Listen to Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. That's Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. the Armenians, the war for the most part is lost. The Azeri edge of military hardware and materials broke the Armenian defenses. This was a 20th century war being fought with 21st century materials. The frozen conflict has thawed. But what comes now is the peace deal and the ceasefire, brokered by Russia and supported by Turkey. So what is in this deal? And what are the Azeris hoping to impose upon the Armenians? Well, for that, we turn to our third guest. Part 3. New Landlords um, That ceasefire largely holds till 2016. And, and there you get what's characterized as either the April War or the Four-Day War. And in those four days, um, what happens is Azerbaijan finds that it's able to retake land by force. Um, it doesn't retake much. Uh, about an area about the size of two home lots around the world. Uh, Australia, the United States, probably closer than, say, London, where lots are smaller, but just two little small slivers of territory at a cost of a couple hundred lives. But it, it, it shows that if you can't solve it at the negotiating table, you can solve it this way. That gets settled with a ceasefire. Um, in July of this year, there's a skirmish. A uh, couple people die, a dozen or so. Um, and that gets settled with the ceasefire, but the change comes there. And, and the change builds on the earlier one. The earlier one, you could regain territory by land. The one in July, um, Turkey's coming to Azerbaijan and basically saying, uh, we think you should have agreed to the ceasefire. We think you should keep fighting. You're in a military position to gain back territory on the ground and, and will help. And that help first comes in the form of uh, military exercises, 
Uh, those take place in, in Azerbaijan in August. Um, Turkey leaves behind on runways in Azerbaijan F-16 fighter jets. And Azerbaijan uh, waits until it's an opportune time to fight. Kerry Kavanaugh is the former U.S. ambassador and the special negotiator for Eurasian conflicts, as well as the former chair of the OSC Minsk Group, who helped negotiate some of the previous ceasefires and peace deals over Nagorno-Karabakh. He is also currently the chairman of the International Alert Organization and a professor of diplomacy at the University of Kentucky. We are very pleased to have Kerry join us today. Um, that last round of fighting, the one we're focused on today, uh, comes about due to those three things. The change in, you can gain land back by fighting, the change in Turkey's supportive position, and by picking the time, you're able to pick a time when the international community is truly distracted. The United States is in the final stage of an election campaign. Um, COVID's a big problem here, still is. France is dealing with a big COVID problem, shutting down, in fact, for the second time. Paris, so uh, President Macron's attention is directed toward that, plus a Brexit problem, plus some Islam problems of its own to deal with. And Moscow is looking at continued troubles in Ukraine, in Belarus, in Kyrgyzstan. So no one is focused, no one is ready to jump into a problem in the South Caucasus. And that's when the fighting breaks out. So with this conflict we've just seen the end of in 2020, the results were starkly different to the previous fighting. Many people are attributing that to the huge difference in military spending between Yerevan and Baku. How much effect do you think this huge difference in spending on military assets had on the conflict? So that 2016 fighting I mentioned, um, I, I highlighted the gain of territory. That, that feeds into why are they fighting now. The other change that occurred in 2016 is Israel overtook um, Russia as Azerbaijan's primary arms supplier. Um, Turkey comes into play after that as well as, as a big factor. So we see Azerbaijan had been on an arms buying spree, but they had been buying Russian equipment primarily. And Armenia was provided Russian equipment. And Moscow would seek to balance the two in a relative sense so there wasn't a preponderance of military power on one side or the other. And that starts changing in 2016, as Azerbaijan buys, in particular, very sophisticated um, drones in, in, in reconnaissance and fighting UAVs to be able to engage in fighting in a very different way, a more 21st century way. Armenia was still focused more on the past and how they had fought in the 1990s. And, and it led to, with this latest outbreak of fighting, a significant imbalance in both military capability on the equipment side, but also strategy and tactics. Azerbaijan also had copied some of the tactics the United States used in uh, fighting in Afghanistan and tactics Turkey had used in fighting in Syria. What was the event that finally pushed Yerevan to accept the ceasefire? Was it the threatening of the Lachin Corridor, or was it the taking of Shushi or Shushar if you're Aziri? The inflection point was very much the taking of uh, Shusha. And, and what happened there is the, the Azerbaijanis had 
pushed significantly along the the northern border of Iran. So the southern districts that had been held by the Armenians and basically had recovered most of those. And then they had a decision to make, do you strike north toward severing the Lachin Corridor, which literally could let you besiege uh, Nagorno-Karabakh, or do you head toward uh, Sushan? And, and what they do is because of the way the Lachin Corridor works, it loops right into Susha. They head for Susha, which gives you a bit of both. And, and they do it as a double movement. So it's coming from the south, but it's also coming a bit from the east. And I think the Armenians were anticipating a full frontal assault that would last a long time. This had been a key point for fighting in the 90s. And, and for the Armenians to take Shusha, it had taken almost two years. And I think the thought on Armenia was, if they're fighting there, we can hold them off. Winter will come. The fighting will stop. But they didn't get hit with a full frontal assault. They got hit with special operations forces and small groups making penetrations all around the area. And that proved successful in letting Azerbaijan gain the center of the city and pushing the Armenians out. And once you held that city, you have the commanding heights over Stepanakert, the capital city of the Nagorno-Karabakh region. And, and basically it's indefensible and particularly indefensible against the weaponry that, that we saw Azerbaijan was already deploying. So I think the Russians looked at that, saw how quickly the city had fallen and, and approached the Armenians and the Azerbaijanis to get them to stop fighting. And, and I think the rationale behind that on Moscow's part wasn't, oh, we've always wanted to get back into this region and have a greater military say here. Indeed, I think Moscow was reluctant to get back into this region this way. I, I think it was a fear of desperate times lead to desperate measures Armenia could have been on the edge of doing something that would guarantee Azerbaijan would respond accordingly on Armenian territory, which could trigger a Russian response due to their military pact with Armenia. That could have been a, a, a ballistic missile launch on the city of Baku, destruction of the pipeline infrastructure, destruction of the oil and gas processing facilities about 20 kilometers south of Baku, any of those things would have elicited an Azerbaijani response that would not have been confined to Nagorno-Karabakh proper, but would have hit Armenia and would have triggered that Russian and CSTO uh, defense responsibility. With this ceasefire, there are still a lot of details in the air at the moment, but one of the biggest questions will be regarding the Armenians who fled Artsakh during the hostilities. What will happen to those people? And a lot of those things, a lot of the details weren't really fleshed out. And I think that's the other challenge of, of, of what emerged on November 9th. And as I said, I don't see what emerged as different than what had been discussed by the three men's group co-chairs in the two countries in the past, but it's less comprehensive. So I'll give you one example. President Aliyev uh, made a statement a few days back talking about they wanted uh, 
Armenia to pay for all the damage done in the occupied regions. That if a city was destroyed, Armenia should fix it. If cultural landmarks are destroyed, Armenia should fix it. Um, in the discussions I was part of, for example, 99 to 2001, um, there were provisions in the draft document that addressed all those problems. Um, each side actually was going to be responsible for its own reconstruction. So you wouldn't have a thousand court cases going forward at the, the European court or something, arguing uh, land claims and ownership questions and such. Um, there was also greater work done in the past on provisions of peacekeepers, how long, though we didn't have detail like they did on the military side, but you know that the fine points of diplomacy, it's always said the devil's in the details. A lot of those detailed provisions matter. Um, now that you're past a war, this calls for a greater uh, international coordination, um, both on the peace part status and, and what will happen to Armenians living in Karabakh. And Putin has said the Minsk group co-chairs should continue to work on that. And, and I think it, it calls for greater coordination on the international humanitarian side. I want to get an idea about the mindset Yerevan and Baku were in at the time of signing the ceasefire. Was Baku pushing a ceasefire to try and end hostilities before the winter set in and made fighting difficult? Or was Armenia really on the brink of collapse with their army after the capture of Shusha? I, I think at the point they were at the inflection point after the capture of Shusha, uh, you were looking at a handful of days left before all of Karabakh would have been in Azerbaijan's hands and no Armenians would be living there. And the destruction that would have entailed, the loss of life that would have entailed, um, I don't think you would have ever had a situation where people would be able to return there. And, and I think that's the argument, at least, that Prime Minister Pashinyan is making, there there was no other option. There are still major parts of Karabakh that remained mostly Armenian and were never taken by Azeri troops, particularly in the mountainous areas in the north. Do you think Baku will make concessions to these territories to avert the risk of guerrilla fighting flaring up in the region? So, so the main point to make there is that the agreement reached in Moscow is a complete peace agreement. So... There is diplomatic work that needs to be done ahead because you can't achieve a sustainable, lasting peace simply by military means. That's been the problem that has plagued this region for decades, if not centuries. So you need to work out an arrangement that's going to be acceptable that lets people live in a way that won't make this conflict flare up again and again. And I think that's going to be what we see work done next. Um, it won't come easily. It won't come quickly, particularly with the recent fighting. It, it's very hard to get people who were at each other's throats last week to sit down at a bargaining table and talk about how we work this out. But I think it needs to be worked out. You already hear calls in Armenia. Um, we shouldn't have signed it. We should have kept fighting. And you hear other calls, this isn't the end of it. We will fight again and we will get that land back. Um, that needs to be put to rest. 
And the way to put that to rest isn't on the battlefield, but it's at the negotiating table. Probably the biggest thing to come out of this peace deal would be these two guaranteed corridors. How these will be guaranteed is still yet to be determined. The first of these would be guaranteeing the Lachin Corridor from Armenia proper to the likely soon-to-be re-exclaved areas of Armenian Nagorno-Karabakh. Guaranteeing this corridor would mean that Azerbaijan could never besiege the area or starve the people living in Armenian Nagorno-Karabakh. It would also guarantee the Armenians to be able to travel to these areas of Karabakh without going through Azeri border controls. The second corridor, though, is a big deal for both Baku and Ankara, the capital of Turkey. To vastly oversimplify, as we quite often do in this show, imagine a vertical tall rectangle. That is Armenia. To the right is a wider rectangle, and that'll be Azerbaijan. On the bottom left-hand side of the Armenian rectangle is a smaller rectangle known as Nachivan, a province of Azerbaijan fully cut off from its homeland. For many years now, Armenia has kept this province completely disconnected by not allowing Azeris to travel through Armenia to Nachivan. So the only way that Azeris could visit their state of Nachivan is either by air, by going through Iran, or via Georgia and then Turkey and then into Nachivan. This has been a huge strategic problem for Azerbaijan. The new ceasefire terms, though, are guaranteeing a corridor between Azerbaijan and Nachivan. But how this will be implemented will be very tricky. As always, the devil lies in the details. You know, will this be a national Azeri territory, part of Azerbaijan proper, which would mean cutting across the bottom quarter of Armenia and cutting off part of Armenia from the rest of Armenia? Or will it be part of Armenian territory, but be guaranteed much like the Lachin Corridor? But again, but going with that option as well raises many questions regarding things like border checks and visa controls, as well as the fact that will the Azeris demand peacekeepers to guard that road and guarantee it, much like the Armenians have done in Lachin? What do these corridors mean for the region? Um, it, it depends on what that quarter entails, and those details haven't been fleshed out yet either. Um, as I had mentioned when I had been involved in this earlier, we were looking at potentially sovereign quarters. Uh, this would mean Turkey could send military equipment to its brothers in Azerbaijan via the court. Um, it's not clear to me, is that allowed here? Um, what's allowed to be sent uh, between Armenia and Karabakh? Is it everything? Is it limited? Are there controls on people? Is it totally unfettered people back and forth? Um, these these are not simple questions, and, and these will have to get sorted out. This will also provide a direct road between Ankara and Baku, and because of that, a direct connection between Turkey and the Caspian Sea. What do you think this second corridor will do for Turkey going forward? Yeah, and, and I think for trade, it's pretty clear that's going to be important no matter what. And I think no matter what, this will have trade in it. But does trade include military equipment? Do you get to inspect things that are going from Nakhchivan, Azerbaijan, to Azerbaijan? Um, if it's literally free passage, um, that needs to be detailed out how that will work and, and how that will be managed. Um, Turkey, many people don't realize this. Um, you know, Part of the previous treaty a century before has the narrowest sliver of land that connects the Republic of Turkey to Nakhchivan. So already on the other side, there is this not three kilometer wide, I think, in points, 
piece of land that allows them a physical connection. I've driven down that road and seen it, so it is there, and, and that meant always Turkey could support Azerbaijan by providing materials of whatever type to, to that region. Um, but no, a cross path that will take them all the way to the Caspian is something very new and very different. Moscow now has 3,000 heavily armed peacekeepers backed up by tanks and air support, securing the ceasefire lines and guaranteeing the safety of the remaining Armenians, as well as their supply and lifeline of the Lachin Corridor. With Russia having troops in the middle of both sides, how do you think that will affect Baku and Yerevan's relationship with Moscow? It's complicated, as they say. So what, what has it done also with Moscow-Turkish relations? So uh, I, I think it's probably on the regional front with Baku, with Yerevan. Um, it probably improves them both in that it's helped stop the fighting. I, I think in the end, we've already seen from Yerevan, um, there was a call on the weekend um, that they will have closer military relations with Russia, or they're seeking that. Um, Azerbaijan has made very clear it's welcomed the way the Russian uh, peacekeeping forces are engaging. Um, it wanted a greater role for Turkey. It did not get that, but it did get from Russia um, a supportive statement that obviously Turks could be in Azerbaijan. Azerbaijan's a sovereign country. Um, they could operate a peacekeeping observation monitoring type center in Azerbaijan and keep an eye on what's going on. So it's a sliver of recognition of a greater Turkish role there. But they largely froze Turkey out. Um, for Turkey, Russia, I, I think that's where the greater complication is. Um, there, Turkey clearly is seeking to play a larger um, more influential role in the region. Um, does it come as a surprise? Under President Erdogan, we've seen that in Syria, we've seen it in Libya, we've seen it in the Eastern Mediterranean. Um, now we see it here. But it's clear from a geopolitical standpoint, Turkey and Russia are in competition. Um, Russia has stopped the fighting, enhanced its role in the region, but Turkey, by having encouraged the fighting, has also enhanced its role in the region. The situation on the ground has irrevocably changed. The balance of power has shifted. Now Russia has 3,000 boots on the ground. Turkey has easy access to the Caspian. Nakhchivan might be reconnected with the rest of Azerbaijan. This will be huge for the Caucasus region. And how it will radiate into the wider area is still yet to be figured out. But to take a look at the likely options, we turn to our fourth guest. Part four. Is this peace or just a pause? Well, I think the, the key difference is that what we've seen now uh, is the regionalization uh, of the Armenian-Azerbaijani conflict. Uh, the conflict has, in a sense, you know, tipped out of uh, a multilateral diplomatic framework uh, for its resolution a framework that was, uh, you know, led by a coalition, an international coalition uh, of influential uh, states, um, and it's become regionalized. So uh, it's become a theater of conflict uh, where regional powers uh, are involved, uh, are on the ground, 
Um, and in that sense, it's joined a spectrum uh, of conflicts uh, alongside those in Syria, in Libya, uh, and elsewhere, um, where, where Russia uh, and Turkey are facing off uh, against one another uh, on one level, uh, and yet are working together uh, in order to exclude uh, Euro-Atlantic actors and to increase their own strategic autonomy uh, on a regional uh, and global scale. So I think that's the key difference. Um, in 2016, uh, obviously, we saw a much shorter uh, escalation of violence, just a four-day war, not a 44-day war. Uh, and the, the previous deterrent structure uh, was still more or less uh, in place. And, and that collapsed, uh, I think, in, in September. Lawrence Brewers is the Caucasus Program Director at the London-based think tank Chatham House. He is also an Associate Fellow for Chatham House's Russia and Eurasia Program. Lawrence has written a number of amazing books on this exact conflict and is one of the most respected experts when it comes to this region of the world. He joins us today. Well, there's been a regional arms race going on uh, since the mid-2000s. Uh, there have been uh, two occasions when uh, Azerbaijan doubled uh, its defense uh, budget. Um, famously, uh, there was a, uh, a kind of a rhetorical trope uh, that the Azerbaijani military budget, the defense budget, equaled the entirety uh, of Armenia's state budget. Now, uh, you know, there are obviously you know, issues. Uh, military expenditure doesn't translate in a straightforward way uh, into military capability. Um, but certainly, um, I think Azerbaijan uh, invested in a lot of you know, very uh, sophisticated military kit. Um, and, you know, we saw... Uh, uh, that effectively used uh, over uh, the course of this conflict. Um, and I think, you know, there are other factors too uh, that tipped uh, the balance uh, in, in Azerbaijan's favour. Uh, various different kinds of Turkish uh, capability uh, were lent uh, to Azerbaijan um, from sharing intelligence, uh, support with targeting, uh, air support. Um, and most controversially, of course, there is the, the running story uh, about Syrian mercenaries, um, you know, that's still denied uh, in Baku and Ankara. Um, but the non nonetheless has been, you know, prolif proliferation uh, of different source materials and indicating uh, that that uh, uh, might have been the case. Um, so, uh, you know, I think overall, um, we can't take away from the fact that Azerbaijan's own military performance uh, was pretty good. Uh, no comparison uh, with the disarray and disorganization uh, of the early 1990s. Um, but I think various you know, additional new forms of capability uh, also made a huge difference. And on the flip side of that, um, you know, the Armenian uh, army and armed forces um, have been very much uh, dependent uh, on Russian supplies almost exclusively uh, over the past uh, 15, 20 years. Armenia hasn't had the budget uh, to invest uh, in new uh, military technology. Um, I think that the calculus in Armenia has been that as a member of the Collective Security Treaty Organization and through bilateral uh, arrangements with Russia, that Armenia has been able to receive you know, quite a lot uh, of military equipment and hardware at discounted prices. Um, but I think you know, what, we, what we have seen, and I think this has been one of Turkey's major gains, uh, we've seen an Azerbaijani army effectively using Turkish technology, tactics, and, and doctrine, uh, very comprehensively and effectively defeat 
uh, an army that has been almost exclusively reliant on Russian uh, technology, uh, tactics and doctrine, and even Soviet uh, equipment. So uh, in, in that sense, I think, you know, the military balance did shift decisively, and, and that's reflected in the outcome of this war. Reading a number of the analysts' reports on this conflict, it seems that one of the major game changers of the Azeris was the use of Turkish and Israeli drones. What impact do you think that had on the battlefield? Uh, yes, the, the, the drone factor has been, you know, one of the, the top sort of, you know, narratives around uh, why this war was won. Um, I think they, they certainly did make a difference. Uh, of course, the use of drones in itself is not new. There were drones deployed uh, during the four-day war uh, in April 2016. Um, what was new, I think, was the use of these Bayraktar TB2 uh, drones, which were newly acquired uh, by Azerbaijan uh, this summer. Um, you know, there's a lot of speculation that actually they were also operated uh, by Turkish operatives, given their newness uh, in, in Azerbaijan, that you know, Azerbaijani operatives wouldn't have had the time uh, to use them so proficiently and effectively. And, and the way that these drones were used uh, was in order to, to break down the supply lines uh, to the very heavily fortified uh, Armenian front line along the line of contact. So you know, these drones were used to, uh, to target uh, reserves on their way, um, breaking up that supply line and leaving uh, the, you know, the, the front line fortified positions vulnerable, uh, isolated, and these were just overwhelmed uh, through, uh, through, through a frontal uh, assault. So I think um, you know, those are, uh, that's a, some of the, you know, the, the way in which this drone technology uh, was used. But it's not only about uh, the, the drones. Um, uh, I think uh, the use of these smaller, uh, much more mobile, tactically flexible uh, um, um, groups of so soldiers uh, was also uh, effectively used by Azerbaijan. Um, you know, we many people, uh, including myself, had doubts uh, about whether um, the mountainous terrain uh, might slow down uh, the Azerbaijani advance, um, and that didn't really happen. So. Um, in, in that sense, I think, you know, this is a, a, a multi-pronged uh, military victory. The drones played a big part, um, but there's clearly also been a transformation in, in basic operating tactics within the Azerbaijani military. This new corridor between Azerbaijan and Nachivan, how significant a development is that for Ankara and Baku? Yeah, it, it's significant on a number of different levels. Now, Nachivan, of course, has a small border uh, with Turkey, and so the existence uh, of a corridor would effectively open up, um, you know, the southern Caucasus and then beyond through to Azerbaijan and then the Caspian and then Central Asia uh, would open up a new corridor uh, east, uh, west uh, and, and the other way around, uh, which could be quite significant uh, for uh, Turkish uh, trade um, and um, you know, economic influence to come into the region um, and for Azerbaijani trade to move in, in the other direction. Uh, so it, it, it is quite significant. It offers an alternative uh, to uh, transit through through Georgia, um, but uh, I mean I think it could really become significant in the context of an overall settlement um, if this corridor becomes you know really uh, an artery that also weaves in uh, Armenian interests. Uh, then it can become I think really uh, a powerful instrument for opening up and normalizing relations, creating uh, a sense of uh, new interdependencies, multiple stakes in uh, opening up 
the, the southern part uh, of the Caucasus. Um, but that depends on other you know, political developments um, in the Armenian-Azerbaijani and indeed Armenian-Turkish uh, relationships um, in order to sort of move on from this idea of a, a safe corridor uh, through hostile territory. You know, if we really want the region uh, to open up, we need to kind of lose that understanding and think more in terms of uh, total access, you know, freedom of movement uh, through a region uh, where borders essentially become much softer uh, and more symbolic. But it's, it's very hard to see uh, that happening um, without a wider uh, you know, reconfiguration and transformation uh, in the political relationships across the region. At one point in this conflict, it looked like Iran might put weapons and help toward the Armenians. But Iran has a large Azeri population along the border in places like Tabriz, who began protesting this move by Tehran when it became public. Why would Iran want to get involved in this conflict on the Armenian side when they have such a large Azeri population in their country? Um, it, it seems to me that Iran has faced kind of multiple uh, pressures uh, coming from the Karabakh conflict, um, but hasn't really had very effective levers uh, to influence the conflict in a strong way. Um, so I think a key factor is Iran's own ethnic Azerbaijani population. It's the largest uh, minority group. Uh, Iranian Azerbaijan uh, obviously borders on the Republic uh, of Azerbaijan. Um, and I think what we saw through the course of this conflict was a more vocal, uh, popular protest and support uh, for Azerbaijan's position uh, in the Karabakh conflict. There were you know, street demonstrations in Tabriz uh, and other cities uh, in Iranian Azerbaijan. And so you know, I think pressure on uh, the Iranian state uh, to perhaps be more vocal uh, in its otherwise sort of rather formal support uh, of Azerbaijan's territorial integrity. Uh, on the other hand, uh, you know, Iran um, has been uh, quite dependent uh, on, on Russia uh, in the Security Council um, in the UN Security Council, in the light of its you know, international isolation uh, in, in other fields, uh, plus you know, forthcoming uh, arms deals and so on with Russia. Uh, so Iran wouldn't want to cross uh, any of Russia's red lines in this conflict. And I think you know, the outcome um, is more or less tolerable uh, to, to Iran. I think the main anxiety, uh, there are two anxieties, I think, in Iran, um, that a, a thriving and sort of revived uh, Republic of Azerbaijan might potentially become uh, a source of uh, attraction, uh, potentially irredentist ideas uh, focused on its own ethnic Azerbaijani population. Um, I think, you know, in practice, uh, certainly uh, for as long as Haydar and Ilham Aliyev have been president uh, of Azerbaijan, there never has been any encouragement uh, of that kind of irredentist sentiment, which is much more associated uh, with uh, Haydar Aliyev's predecessor, uh, Abu Faz El Chibay. Um, and the other concern, I think, is uh, the increase in potential Israeli presence and influence uh, in Azerbaijan uh, as a result of this conflict and how that might affect, you know, the, the otherwise, you know, uh, quite uh, complicated and, and uh, intricate relationship uh, between Israel uh, and Iran. So I think those are the two kind of concerns um, that, that Iran faces. But, you know, it, I don't think it, there's much of a choice but to live with the outcome that's, that's happened. Um, and what was also interesting is that Iran actually fielded an attempt uh, at mediation, um, which I think shows that this, this conflict kind of had 
appeared you know, more uh, important uh, on Iran's radar. The last time that Iran tried to mediate was in 1992, and it ended really badly. So uh, in that sense, uh, more interest from Iran. Um, but it remains the sort of the regional power uh, that doesn't really uh, have a seat uh, at any of the relevant tables uh, in the resolution of this conflict. In the first fortnight of the war, Azerbaijan had done a lot of damage and had gained some good chunks of ground. Russia, at that point, was trying to broker a ceasefire in the early days and principally Yerevan and Baku were all for it. It was the Turks, though, who reportedly broke the ceasefire themselves and pushed Baku to continue the fighting. Why would Turkey be so keen to keep this war going? Well, I think that touches on, you know, what Turkey's... Uh, whole strategy with regard to this conflict has been uh, in 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 this war. Uh, again, I'm I'm not a Turkey expert uh, as such, uh, but it seems to me that um, you know from July of this year, when there were clashes in the area of the Armenia-Azerbaijan border, intensified contacts uh, between Azerbaijani and Turkish defence ministries uh, openly voiced threats uh, to Armenia coming from senior uh, Turkish officials. Uh, that there has been, you know, a plan uh, to uh, insert Turkey uh, into uh, the Armenian-Azerbaijani conflict and and sort of deconfliction mediation process um, as part of uh, a broader spectrum um, of theatres where where Turkey is essentially competing uh, with with Russia. Um, yet at the same time, as I as I mentioned earlier, uh, acting as a kind of uh, partner. Um, in uh, uh, curtailing and limiting uh, Euro-Atlantic influence. So I think, uh, yeah, uh, Erdogan, I think, uh, encouraged uh, Azerbaijan to to continue uh, the the fighting. Um, I think we also need to remember what Azerbaijan had defined its war goals as. Uh, You know, from the beginning of of the conflict, um, Ilham Aliyev had quite a clear message that the war goals were to, to secure uh, a schedule for the withdrawal of Armenian forces from the occupied uh, districts. And so um, I think uh, that goal became uh, attainable um, sort of later on, and there was momentum uh, behind the Azerbaijani advance, and, and so no reason really to, uh, uh, to stop the fighting. Putin got what he was hoping for, and now Russia is in charge of the peacekeeping operations in the region. Russia now has 3,000 boots on the ground here. But what does Russia gain from putting its soldiers in harm's way? The plan or the the intention to deploy Russian peacekeepers on the ground in Nagorno-Karabakh has actually been around uh, for quite a few years. Um, So ever since uh, the pattern of escalation kind of became more serious since 2014, uh, Russia has been promoting this idea of, you know, it's referred to as the Lavrov plan after Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov. Uh, although the existence of this plan has you know, been widely denied and, you know, there isn't a single document that one can point to, um, the idea essentially consisted uh, of uh, opening up uh, the region's kind of closed borders uh, and deploying uh, a Russian peacekeeping force uh, in Nagorno-Karabakh. And I think this has been a response uh, it sort of r- has been Russia's response to the growing uh, military power asymmetry between Armenia and Azerbaijan, and effectively to preempt uh, a decisive uh, conflict that Azerbaijan might win. Um, now, uh, Russia was uh, putting this plan forward 
uh, to Armenia and Azerbaijan over recent years uh, without success. Uh, and I think what has essentially happened is that this war um, has offered a new opportunity uh, for Russia to pursue this plan um, to, and to sell it effectively uh, to the parties. Um, so what, you know, the timing uh, of the, uh, the trilateral agreement and of the deployment of the peacekeeping force, I think, is all important. Um, at the point that the, the agreement was signed, Azerbaijani forces were two or three kilometers away from Stepanakert. Uh, and I think that they could have retaken uh, that city and effectively ended the Armenian war effort uh, within, within a few days. And it's just at that time uh, that Russia comes in um, with its peacekeeping uh, arrangements. And so what I think this does is that it, um, it prevents a decisive outcome. Uh, Azerbaijan has a military victory, uh, but it's not complete. Uh, Azerbaijan, uh, Armenia, sorry, has been defeated, uh, but not completely so. Um, so in that sense, uh, the peacekeeping operation sort of preserves uh, a sense uh, of, of a non-decisive outcome. Um, and it's, I think it's important to understand what it averts. Um, a, a complete Azerbaijani victory sponsored by Turkey, I think, is the, wor is the, the worst case scenario for Russia uh, that the deployment of peacekeeping forces uh, is intended uh, to, to prevent. Um, now, as you know, the, the, the mandate lasts for five years, um, and I think you know, the, the renewal of that mandate is going to become uh, quite a difficult issue uh, in, Armenia's, uh, sorry, in Russia's relationship and bilateral relations with both Armenia uh, and with Azerbaijan, since there are going to be competing pressures uh, from Armenia. And we've already seen that, I think, in some public statements coming from Nikol Pashinyan, the pressure is going to be for the uh, peacekeeping mandate to continue. I think for Azerbaijan, that's going to be much more difficult. And we may see this becoming uh, an important issue in domestic politics in Azerbaijan. One of the major questions we still do not know the answer to is how many Armenians will be willing to return to Nagorno-Karabakh after the fighting? You know, How will Armenians ever feel safe in the capital of Stepanakert, knowing that the Azeris and their artillery are overlooking the town in Shusha and can open fire at any time? If a small amount like only seven to 8,000 Armenians are all that returns to Nagorno-Karabakh, do you think the Russians will be happy to keep a full contingent of 3,000 troops there? The new situation that we are that is that is implied uh, in the trilateral declaration uh, is that Armenian Azerbaijani communities are going to be living in far closer proximity uh, to one another. Um, and you know, you mentioned Azerbaijan. Uh, Azerbaijanis looking over Stepanakert from Shusha. That's you know uh, really captures the the proximity. Um, this is a new situation that we haven't seen. Uh, for a very long time. And so, you know, it, it raises the issue of, you know, how can these communities cease to see each other as threats? Um, and how can they transform their relations in such a way that this new security and transit architecture actually becomes uh, viable um, and, and, and normal? Um, so I think there are a, a number of issues that, that need to be uh, resolved. Uh, over the last seven, eight weeks. Um, I think each side has plenty of grounds to believe that uh, it has been a victim of, of war crimes. Um, there have been numerous allegations, uh, credible evidence of violations of international uh, humanitarian law. Uh, and so one thing that's needed, I think, is an investigative process 
um, that would uh, kind of break the cycle of impunity uh, for, uh, for, for war crimes and for human rights uh, violations um, to, to kind of draw a line under that. Uh, I think, you know, what we've seen uh, in this war uh, has just added another, you know, layer of trauma uh, to uh, the unresolved traumas uh, of the war in the 1990s. Um, many very grave uh, human rights violations uh, in that conflict, uh, which have never uh, been addressed. Um, well, I think the, the, the Russian peacekeeping mandate as such um, isn't dependent or contingent on the actual number uh, of the Armenian population that it is there to, to protect. Um, I mean, it is a kind of a, as much as it is also uh, a mission to, to protect the residual population in Nagorno-Karabakh, it's also uh, a geopolitical exercise. It's, um, you know, asserting uh, a Russian presence. It's preventing um, a worst-case scenario uh, of, of Russia effectively being uh, kind of locked out or, or, you know, no longer relevant to uh, a resolution process uh, for, for this conflict. Um, and so in that sense, I don't think um, the numbers uh, of returnees actually matter uh, for the peacekeeping mandate uh, itself. Um, but yes, the extent to which Armenians uh, uh, want to return to Nagorno-Karabakh to rebuild uh, the, the the cities and towns, um, I think, is a key question, particularly only with a five-year mandate. Um, you know, there's this great new uncertainty hanging over uh, the uh, the revival uh, of an Armenian-populated Nagorno-Karabakh in, in in the truncated space that uh, that it now has. Um, and by the same token, you know, I think we shouldn't underestimate the problems that are going to confront. Um, the resettlement uh, of the occupied territories that have gone back uh, to Azerbaijani jurisdiction. Um, you know, when when we talk about you know different cities or villages having been liberated, um, perhaps not everybody understands that uh, these settlements, to all intents and purposes, no longer exist. Uh, large areas have been heavily mined. Um, there are going to be you know it's going to be a very lengthy process to rehabilitate uh, these territories. Um, and then there's, you know, the problem of how to build uh, viable communities, uh, communities that people actually want uh, to live in, rather than, you know, frontier settlements that are very heavily securitized. Uh, and that's why it's very important, I think, to, to try to think beyond the logic of security corridors and transit corridors and into, uh, you know, a, a more normalized kind of space. I think the question I was asked more than any other in the lead up to this piece was actually about Russia. Russia has a defense treaty with Armenia. Armenia is part of the CTSO. Russia even supplies almost all of Armenia's arms. Even their foreign minister, Sergei Lavrov, who is incredibly pivotal in Russia's foreign strategy, is of Armenian descent. So why didn't Russia send in military support or intervene in this conflict sooner? Yeah, that's the, the million dollar question. And... I think there are kind of two schools of thought. Uh, one school is that uh, this has been a calculation from the beginning, uh, that Russia knew what was coming um, and that it basically uh, gave uh, an implicit green light uh, to Azerbaijan, uh, basically saying, you know, go ahead, we won't intervene, 
you take back uh, the, the territories um, uh, as a kind of, you know, a, a geopolitical play uh, to finesse its relations um, with, with Azerbaijan, and also a recognition uh, of the power a- asymmetry uh, that has been developing uh, in Azerbaijan's favor. Um, the other school of thought is that uh, although Russia may have known that uh, a military operation uh, was coming, uh, it was perhaps not prepared and was somewhat surprised uh, by the scale of it um, and uh, by how it actually uh, was implemented. Um, and that you know Russia was basically in tactical improvisation mode. Um, it responded uh, initially uh, by seeking to negotiate uh, a ceasefire. It, it, you know, there may well have been expectations that that ceasefire might hold. Uh, Azerbaijan would have had, you know, a, a, a 10, 12, 14-day war uh, in which to restore control over some territories. So a significant escalation over the four-day war in April uh, 2016. Um, and it may have been taken aback uh, that that ceasefire uh, didn't hold. Uh, it then, you know, some days later, uh, established these outposts um, at various points along Armenia's borders, including uh, the village of Ter, uh, just on the other side uh, of the Lachin uh, corridor, um, but still kept its its options open. Um, now, others might disagree with me, but my sense is that uh, the second school of, of thought is, is probably closer to the mark. Uh, Russia was improvising uh, through this conflict. It, it didn't uh, necessarily anticipate uh, the scale and, and success uh, of the Azerbaijani advance. Um, but basically, it, it had uh, a plan B, uh, which was to you know, revive this idea uh, of the Lavrov plan um, and to you know, put that to the parties at an appropriate moment. Um, and the timing, indeed, was uh, it was perfect timing uh, when, when Russia... Uh, uh, put that forward and kind of clinched uh, the deal. Um, so that's one million dollar question. But I think another million dollar question is why Azerbaijan didn't accepted this um, and didn't, uh, you know, press ahead and more or less, you know, exclude the possibility uh, that secessionism in Nagorno-Karabakh would continue to be a problem um, and would continue to would, would resurface potentially in some other form. Uh, in the future. Um, And I think in in answering that, obviously, we don't know what Russia may have threatened uh, or said might happen uh, if Azerbaijan didn't agree. Um, There is also the issue that uh, Baku may have felt that it would be politically very challenging uh, to move into uh, the kind of the heartland of Armenian populated uh, Nagorno-Karabakh. There would have been issues about, you know, what if there, there, there were instances uh, of, you know, civilians being killed, uh, if there were processes that, you know, might look like uh, ethnic cleansing. Um, and it may have, in that sense, been uh, a tactical decision to, uh, to hold back. Uh, you know, the, and the other factor is that, you know, we don't know how long the mandate uh, of the peacekeeping, peacekeeping mission uh, may, may last. It might be that this is seen as a five or, or ten year kind of timeout um, and that there will be opportunities in the future uh, to uh, to complete the mission, as it were. Uh, at the time that the trilateral declaration was signed, 
um, I think you know Ilham Aliyev could certainly say that uh, he had uh, achieved uh, the war goals uh, as defined. He had his schedule uh, for the withdrawal of Armenian forces from the occupied territories. And the fact that the Azerbaijani advance had recaptured Shusha, in a sense, was also uh, a key factor that you know allowed him perhaps to to step back. Um, but as uh, we'll just have to see uh, in the future, um, you know whether uh, that outcome continues to be seen in a wholly positive light uh, in in the future in Azerbaijan, or whether uh, the fact that you know a Russian uh, presence of boots on the ground was established actually becomes a source of, of controversy and, uh, and regret uh, in Azerbaijan. In your opinion, is this ceasefire peace or just a temporary pause? It's definitely not a solution or resolution uh, to the conflict. Um, you know, the, it's regionalization, uh, the establishment of a kind of Russian-Turkish duopoly uh, over the management of this conflict uh, is not, in the end, uh, I think, uh, conducive uh, to its resolution. The outcome that we've seen uh, is a, a very specific and contingent outcome uh, related to a particular moment um, in the relations between Russia and Turkey, uh, in the relationships uh, between their leaders uh, in what are quite personalized uh, regimes. Uh, you know, the durability uh, of, this, uh, of this agreement um, is not founded in institutions, it's founded in, in key personalities. And so in that sense, uh, it is unstable. Uh, what we are not seeing is uh, a decisive military victory in which the winner effectively defines a new security system and embeds uh, their adversary within it, uh, thereby you know, removing a basis uh, for uh, adversarial challenges uh, in the future. Um, uh, as I mentioned, it, it's not a complete Azerbaijani victory. It's not a total Armenian defeat. I think each side has enough of a cause uh, in this new status quo that they would you know, be able to continue their previous strategies and to mobilize uh, around them uh, in the future. Um, so I think a, a, a lot also depends on the attitude taken uh, particularly in Azerbaijan, I suppose, um, you know, there's, there's a choice, I think, between an integrative peace, one that would uh, integrate uh, Armenian interests as well as, as Azerbaijani and, and Turkish and Russian interests into a, a new uh, kind of geopolitical dispensation uh, or a punitive peace um, that, you know, effectively seeks to uh, to replicate, in a way, what Azerbaijan had to put up with um, in the 1990s. Um, and I think, you know, when you look around at, at history, uh, punitive pieces have, have generally, you know, often uh, led to, to future conflict. Um, a lot will turn on the internal process also uh, in Armenia. Uh, there are debates uh, in Armenia now about, you know, what lessons can be learned um, whether more could have been gained from compromising uh, from a position of strength uh, in the 1990s as opposed to uh, just letting the situation uh, run and effectively stagnate. Um, and uh, so there's going to be, I think, a, a choice between uh, investing in a kind of revanchism uh, focused on uh, reversing the outcomes uh, of, of the last few weeks 
uh, or a different kind of paradigm uh, and setting of priorities uh, for, uh, for Armenia. Imagine growing up your entire life being told the devil himself lives just over those hills. The people who want to harm you the most are just over the border. Then imagine having to choose to either flee your home or take a chance and see if those rumors are true and live next to the people you've been demonized to for the last hundred years. These are terrifying times for both sides. The Zuris don't know if they'd won this war completely or just opened up a far nastier new phase of guerrilla warfare in the mountains. It's also terrifying for the Armenians living in Stepanakert, now living in the shadow of the Aziri artillery, knowing that this war started so incredibly suddenly. What's to say the next one won't as well? The civilians in Stepanakert at least got a few days warning this time, with fighting starting all the way at the border. But next time, it may be just a few seconds of warning, living in the shadow of Shushar. Whilst the mood in Yerevan is one of anger and defeat, the mood in Baku is jubilant. Many people returning to the once Aziri-dominated areas of Karabakh and setting their feet upon their childhood homes for the first time in decades. President Aliyev is now the president who reversed the national shame of 1991, likely securing him even more years at the helm of Azerbaijan. The peace, though, is not finalized, and now contains a large sword of Damocles hanging above its own head, that sword being the Russian mandate. The Russian peacekeepers are the only thing standing between both sides, and that mandate has an expiry date of five years from now. Both sides would need to sign that agreement again for it to work, and in five years either side could refuse the help. Azerbaijan could simply build up and wait for five years, smash in, and capture the parts of Karabakh that remain in Armenian hands. Or Armenia could simply wait five years as well, and launch their rockets into the crucial heartland of Azerbaijan, hoping to relive the glory days of conquest while Baku drowns in chaos. I don't think this conflict is over. Just paused. And an already potent ethnic venom from the wars of 1991 has just been injected into a brand new generation of Armenians and Azerbaijanis. This war is not over. Thank you so much to everybody who tuned in for this episode. I cannot tell you how long I've been waiting to do a follow-up on this topic. And to all the people who messaged me asking when we do this piece, I'm so sorry to keep you waiting, and I really do hope it was worth it. If you want to follow the show on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, you can find us on the handle at RedlinePod. Or you can find me on Twitter on the handle MikeHilliardOz. Oz is in Australia. We're also very pleased to say we've started up our own subreddit, R The Redline Podcast, where we'll be sharing articles, having discussions, and where you can suggest topics and guests for me to check out. I'm also happy to say, upon your request, we've started our very own Discord server for fans of the show to meet up, chat, discuss episodes, and I'll also be popping in quite frequently there as well. We may even be doing a bit of gameplay coming up with some of the friends of the show, where you can come on, chat, and play a few games with myself and my amazing team. So if you want to meet my fantastic team and get more involved with the show, you can find our Discord server at the handle The Red Line. I look forward to seeing you all there. I want to say the biggest thank you to our amazing Patreons. You are the reason we can keep this show going. Every dollar you donate to the show goes right back into it, helping us go after bigger and better stories and covering the expenses that comes with running a show like this. 
If you check your inboxes, you will have the times for the next Patreon Q&A and catch-up taking place in about two weeks' time, where I'll sit down and answer all of your questions and then hang around to chat about everything from Colombia to just ripping on Belgium. The details for which should be in your inbox right about now. If you too want to join in with these live Q&As or simply book a one-on-one time to catch up with myself, you can do that today by signing up to our Patreon. Links available on our website and in the description below. As always, a huge thanks goes out to all of our guests this week. Alex Rafulu is an amazing Aziri journalist, regularly breaking some of the biggest stories in the region. You should check out his website to stay abreast of the big stories as they break in the South Caucasus, as he always gives top-notch analysis. You can find Alex on Twitter at the handle Relakbar. Nick Much is the very first guest to come on the program three separate times, and I'm sure it won't be his last, as it takes some serious guts to go into the front lines of a conflict this hairy. And Nick was in contact with me almost every single day with up-to-the-minute front lines the entire time he was there. Nick is an absolutely amazing journalist, but I'm also proud to call him a friend. You've also finally got around to making himself a Twitter, so I recommend you go follow him over at the handle at TomTheScribe. Kerry Kavanagh is by far one of the friendliest and most knowledgeable ambassadors I have ever had the pleasure of working with over the years, and I don't think I could have found anyone who knows this conflict better than Kerry, having been at the negotiation table himself in the past. Kerry knows all of the major players in this one. He also has an amazing collection of work, and I recommend that you go and take time and check out what he's done, because we will be sure to invite him back on the program soon. You can find Kerry on Twitter at Kerry underscore Kavanagh. Lawrence Brewers wrote the books on this subject. Even when I was researching for this piece, many of the people I came across or interviews I watched were either with Lawrence or were quoting Lawrence, which just goes to show how much of an expert he is in this theatre. So if you want to go even deeper than the two and a bit hours of Karabakh we have here, I really, really recommend you go check out some of Lawrence's work. And you can find Lawrence on Twitter at the handle at Lawrence Brewers. As always, I want to send another thanks to Mark Spencer, who does the bumpers for these episodes. Mark is such a big name in the industry here in Australia and heads up so many amazing projects and still somehow finds the time to help us out here at the Red Line. We cannot thank Mark enough for all of his work. If you want to help us out and say thanks to Mark as well, you can follow him on Twitter at the handle Climactic Show. With just how quickly things are moving on the ground in Karabakh, we wanted to be as up-to-date as possible. So we shot, recorded, cleaned, edited, and released this episode in the space of just three days. In fact, as I write and record this part, we are only four hours from launching the episode. That's how tight the deadline was. But one of the main reasons we were able to pull this off was thanks to our amazing audio cleaner, Joe Hawthorne, who managed to clean and turn around the audio for this episode in under 24 hours. He is an amazing asset to our team, and if you want to hire Joe yourself, you can find him on Twitter at the handle JoeHawthorne77. The last thanks goes out to you for listening to the program. It is always amazing to see the views and the comments coming through each week, and we cannot thank you enough for your support of the show. I really do love hearing from each and every one of you, so keep them coming, and I look forward to meeting more of you this week. We'll be back in a fortnight with another international episode, but until then, thank you, and good night.